Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already, get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. Cassidy was a total alpha male, athletic, smart, in charge, and proud of the way he'd worked his way to the top despite growing up poor in a Boston housing project. His alcoholic, abusive father abandoned the family when Tom was two and a half. Tom earned a football scholarship to the University of Massachusetts, and after his freshman year, muscled his way into Bowdoin, an elite liberal arts college in Maine. He followed four years there with joint master's degrees in business and journalism at Columbia University. And then he set his sights on TV journalism. By 1983, Tom was a rising star at the three-year-old cable news network, where he was a business anchor and host of CNN's Pinnacle Interview series. He had status, respect, and financial security. And he loved his job, even though that meant hiding the fact he was gay. Back then, almost all gay people who worked in journalism, and virtually everyone who worked in front of the camera, kept their private lives very private. Tom's peak professional moment came on October 19, 1987, when he anchored CNN's coverage of the Black Monday crash as stock markets around the world plummeted. It was the single largest percentage drop for the Dow Jones Industrial Average in its history, and Tom provided a calm, steady voice on a day when both were in short supply. It was also the day he found out he was HIV positive. So here's the scene. It's the fall of 1990. I arrive on the 20th floor of CNN's headquarters in New York City. The newsroom is buzzing. I'm escorted to Tom's private office by an assistant. He steps from behind his desk and shakes my hand, which disappears into his. Tom looks older than he does on television, but knowing he's had two close brushes with death, I'm surprised by how good he looks. At 41, he still has the solid build of a college football player and a boyish, disarming smile. His face is lined and a bit gaunt, the skin tight around his well-defined cheekbones. His brown hair is thinning, but his blue eyes dazzle. I'm just a little bit smitten. Tom motions for me to close his office door and sinks into his padded chair. I reach across his desk and clip my microphone to his tie. He gets a few coughs out of the way before I press record.
Tom Cassidy at CNN in New York City. Interviewer is Eric Marcus, tape one, side one. It be, had become crystal clear to me that I was in love with my roommate. Uh, and we talked about it. His, your roommate was straight? Yeah. Was he a football player also? Yep, he was football, hockey. He was a very good athlete. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wit. How did you break it to him? That you were in love with him? I just told him that, essentially. And he was very understanding about it. Was he the first man you fell in love with? This was a mature, a maturing love that I was feeling for as the a, first as time. As opposed to a crush? Yeah, I'd say so. That must have been very frustrating. It was very frustrating, and when we graduated, he hoped to go to medical school. Mm -hmm. So I just left altogether, and I went to Europe for almost a year, and just traveled. Mm -hmm. What um, did you find? Part of it was, well, that's really kind of where I came out. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember meeting this American in London. I didn't know what to do. I really didn't. <laughs> no one had given you lessons. I didn't know what to do. Uh. We go back to my place in London. Uh, and we proceed to chase each other around. Uh, and during the process, the pillow falls off the bed and goes into this heater <laughs> and catches fire. You want to talk about interruptus. Uh -huh. That was really very frightening. Uh, was, then, it, was it the Catholic God come to? Probably. Uh -huh. yeah, Do you probably. think that? Well, maybe a little guilt, but it was, it's a guilt that's mixed with, with excitement, yeah. you know? And this, that had been the, really the first time. Uh -huh. One second. Come in! Hi, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Uh, do you need to... Uh, i got to go do an update. Go. There. Um, so you came back? Mm-hmm. I moved here to New York. Mm -hmm. uh, and I went to work for Reader's Digest. On the publishing side of Reader's Digest, mm -hmm. I really thought all the fun was being enjoyed on the editorial side. But I wasn't prepared for it. I decided that I would go to graduate school, and the business school at Columbia, and also the journalism school at Columbia. And uh, at the time, I got involved with somebody, John Woods, he was 12 years older. He was an illustrator. And uh, he, was, he was real jet set in New York, and uh, was, it was just a blast. John was somebody I had known for five years when I graduated from the schools, and my choice was Eugene, Oregon, or Butte, Montana, to get started in television news. I go to Eugene, Oregon. Nine months later, I go to San Francisco. Uh, nine months later, I go to uh, Chicago. Right when I landed in Chicago, um, you know, John took the wrong person home, and. He ended up having a, a dreadful death. He was murdered. And he was still your lover at that point? Well, we talked all the time, yeah. He really kind of was. We were very close. We talked a lot. It happened about two months after my mother had suddenly died of a stroke. I'd lost the two most important people in my life. I remember a general manager of a station in Chicago kind of not wanting to let me go to the funeral because I'd only gotten there three days before. And he wasn't going to, he goes, you just started here. He goes, it's not family. Did he know who he was to you? No. Uh -huh. So I just turned around and I said, it's not negotiable, and I walked out. And I went to Duncan, Oklahoma, where John was buried. And uh, I was right between the mother and father. 
They knew who you were to him. Yeah. They did, although it was never really discussed, yeah. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And then I just sort of came back to Chicago and was the business editor for Mutual Broadcasting in WCFL there. I couldn't grieve in a public way. And I was in shock, and I couldn't talk to anybody about it. How hard was it to stay, stay in the closet then at work? It wasn't difficult for me at all. Yeah. A, I almost have like a mechanism that I could really separate work from play. And I did not, I made a point of not really socializing with people that I worked with. Once you make a decision and you get a habit down. And you were good at it. Very good at it. When did you first think you had AIDS? That all happened kind of quickly. I tested positive the day of the stock market crash uh, in 87. October 19th. Right. And then I started to have to think more about what, it, what all this meant, testing positive. Were you surprised? Yeah, kind of, because I felt good. And I was traveling 200,000 miles a year and being the attack dog reporter here in, in the money market area. So, and I was just going full speed. And I eventually had pneumonia in July. And that, you couldn't come to work with that? No, and I, what was funny was uh, I had taken a week's vacation just before and gone out to Fire Island to shake this cold, I thought. And I came back and called my doctor and he said, all right, you're coming in to see me this afternoon. And it was classic pneumocystis. And he said, do you know what that means? And I said, AIDS? My instinct was, I have to go back to work. <laughs> and he said, you are to go home and pack a bag and go to Mount Sinai. Your life changes in such fundamental ways when that word comes to you. I felt terrible, mm. terrible. And I was a jock, and I had never felt terrible. <laughs> How long were you in the hospital? 16 days. I mean, these fevers were unbelievable. You must have been scared. I was scared. Mm. Well, I was scared in that uh, I wasn't prepared to die. Mm -hmm. It was such a shock. And it was kind of rude. It really was. I mean, I hadn't said goodbye to anybody. Mm. Nobody knew what the situation was. It wasn't your time you were. No, it wasn't my yet. time, exactly. Uh, and I'm certainly supposed to not just suddenly die. And I came back to work. Uh, they put me on the air first day back. And I looked very uh, skeletal for a year and a half, solid year and a half. There were probably maximum six people in my life that knew I was sick. I was popping those AZT and going to work every day and feeling wobbly and the camera doesn't lie. Uh -uh. And so you had extra makeup. Eventually I became so anemic I had nine transfusions. And I would go and get the transfusions and then rush to work. And I eventually came off AZT. Because it was ma making you so Too sick. anemic, yeah. Uh -huh. And they put me on DDI. And everything was going hunky-dory. Uh, from January. Of this year? Yes. Until April. And on Easter Sunday, I was in Boston. And I started to not feel right. 
my stomach. I was really hurting right there. And uh, I jumped on the shuttle, came down. So I get down here and I, I go to my house, call my doctor. And he gets back to me like 15 minutes. He said, you are to meet me in Mount Sinai in 20 minutes. I went into the emergency room. And as it turns out, my pancreas was six times normal size. They did not know for the next six days whether I was going to make it. You can't eat or drink a thing. And mm. your pancreas makes up its mind whether it wants to live. <laughs> so how, how did the truth make its way out? Well, uh, at that, oh, that was actually kind of funny. Because uh, none of this is funny at this Well, it isn't, but I'll tell you. Look at, well, I always had a good sense of humor. Good thing. I've always had a good sense of humor. Before I left for the Mount Sinai emergency room, like a responsible reporter, I had called the assignment desk and said I would not be in tomorrow. This message, for some reason, got lost. So on Monday, they can't find me here. They called the police. They called the FBI. They ended up calling morgues. Then they called my sister. And my sister calls my college roommate. Wit. Wit. With whom you're still friends. Well, very much so. And he was one of the few people who did know I was sick. And he remembered that I, when I was sick the first time with pneumonia, I was in Mount Sinai. And Witt calls uh, me in the hospital, and I answer the phone. I said, hi, Witt, how are you? And he goes, well, what am I supposed to tell Lorraine, my sister? And I said, because I was hurting. I said, tell her everything, everything. And he said, are you sure? I said, uh-huh, yeah. And so she, he told her. Um, and she called me 20 minutes later. She was great. When did they find out here at the office? When I came back to work, my boss, Lou Dobbs, asked me to come into his office. And he said, how are you doing? And I said, uh, I was trying to put the best foot forward and say, great, great. And he said, how sick were you? With the beads of sweat on your forehead at that point? Yeah, and I said, well, I was pretty sick. <laughs> And he said, well, how sick? I said, I was very sick. And he said, how sick? And I said, well, I have AIDS. I mean, his eyes just sort of rolled back. It was very much a feeling of relief for me. Because Lou Dobbs is clearly one of the most important people in my life. Almost clearly a brother figure. He's a Western cowboy, a macho homophobe uh, who was really a very good friend of mine. And I was afraid of what his reaction would be. Because of the AIDS or because of being gay? Both. He totally surprised me. I mean, I did not have any negative reaction from him. He said, what do you want me to do? He said, do you want me to tell anybody? Do you want me not to tell anybody? I said, I think you better tell everyone. Why at that point? I was tired. I was tired of living a lie. About AIDS? Yeah, about and sick. also about being gay. Because mm. they were intertwined at that point. And he scheduled a meeting for the whole department. 
and he told them I that wasn't around. That must have been very hard. It was very hard for him. For you, as well. Well, or was it simply comforting? It was almost comforting. Uh, uh, did they surprise you? Oh yeah. What did you expect? I didn't know. Uh, what did you fear? Rejection and people freaking. Because of? Because I had AIDS, first uh -huh. of all. That's not an easy no. message to get and to be around. Mm -hmm. And you're a prominent figure within the Very country. prominent, yeah. And I've been here a long time. And uh, I came in the next day and, you know, there were flowers. <laughs> And mass cards <laughs> and a lot of messages. <laughs> There's a lot of love. And uh, my life hasn't been the same since. But the last two years I had lived a very difficult, fabricated life. I used to have to sneak home sometimes and lay down during the day when I had some time off. So you had a double closet. Yeah, exactly. It's not as if you had some disease that you could extricate from the fact you were gay. Right. Plus, I mean, I could, I suddenly became very tuned in <laughs> to what was going on with the plague, and it wasn't looking good. Mm. And I had to think uh, about dying. I mean, I do, I'm still trying to figure out, like a peripatetic reporter, what happens next. Uh-huh. I mean, when you, close your eyes. I mean, you take your last breath, what happens? Uh -huh. I haven't got to figure it figured out. Yeah, you can't take a notepad or the television cameras either. It's no. all on your own. And I've, you know, you don't hear from people, who, I don't hear from people that have passed away. So I, I don't uh, yeah. know. It's kind of intriguing in a way. I wonder if there are gay people in heaven. Well, I think so. Yeah? <laughs> I think so. Maybe heaven is one big gay bar. <laughs> <laughs>
The first lecture was given by Tom CNN boss Lou Dobbs. And in the years since, speakers have included NPR's Linda Wertheimer, David Brooks from The New York Times, and Ben Bradley and Sally Quinn from The Washington Post. This is our final episode of Season 2, so please stay tuned for Season 3 coming this fall. To get the latest news on our plans for Making Gay History and upcoming events, please sign up for our newsletter at makinggayhistory.com. That's also where you can find photos and additional information about Tom Cassidy and where you can listen to all our previous episodes. Before I say my final thank yous, I want to share an email with you. At the end of a recent episode, I told you that whenever I spoke with legendary octogenarian activist Kayla Husen, she greeted me by saying, Hello, dear. What have you got for me? So I invited you to write to me so I could pass your message on to her. This one jumped out at me. Hello. I just got through listening to your podcast on Kay Lehusen and Barbara Giddings. You closed with a reference to Kay's question, What do you have for me? Well, here's something. I am the proud father of a beautiful young woman named Annika. She is 17 years old and dating a most spectacular young lady. She is totally at ease with who she is, quite open about her life, her love, and personality. Indeed, she and I just finished shopping for a prom dress in anticipation of when she and Maddie go to the prom this spring. I have to credit the work and bravery of Kay and Barbara for that. Here, in, of all places, Laramie, Wyoming, my daughter loves another young woman, and she is totally at ease with that. Tell Kay, thank you for me, for Annika and for Maddie. Charles F. Pelkey, Minority Whip, Wyoming House of Representatives. Kay loved all the emails, which I read to her by phone, and she asked me to thank you for your thoughts and love. And feel free to keep them coming. Write to me at hello at makinggayhistory.com. I'm beyond grateful to the many people who have made Making Gay History possible. Thank you, Kevin Jennings, for the Arcus Foundation grant that got us launched. We're grateful as well to Barbara Rabb, a program officer at the Ford Foundation, who made the funds available for Making Gay History's second season. And then there's our crew. Sarah Burningham, our executive producer, always finds a way to make the Making Gay History voices sing. Jenna Weiss-Berman, our co-producer from Pineapple Street Media, believed in us before we believed in ourselves. Thank you also to audio engineer Casey Holford, researcher Zachary Seltzer, our website designer Jonathan Dozier-Ezel, and social media strategist Will Coley. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. And finally... Thank you to my partner in life, Barney Carpfinger, who never doubted that the little podcast that could, could. Making Gay History is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division and the One Archives Foundation. Season two of this podcast is made possible with support from the Ford Foundation, which is on the front lines of social change worldwide. So long, and we'll see you in the fall. Twelve seventy-five. Tom Cassidy from CNN. Five Penn Plaza. Eighty-fifth uh, and part. Eighty-fifth and fifth. Seven one four seven nine zero seven. Yes. Okay, great. Thank you. Great.
Now I have to go take some real serious drugs. <laughs> <laughs>